This is James Coover with K-State Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. When it gets real hot outside, the timing of herbicides becomes more important and requires special care. I've noticed a few fields of corn around the district with signs of nitrogen or herbicide burn from top dress applications. Generally, these are pretty obvious because the symptom of burnt leaves concentrate on row ends and overlaps. For the most part, these fields have a little leaf loss, but will be fine. Save for some possible fungicide applications, corn spraying is largely over with, but post-emergent herbicide on soybeans has just begun. Most of our herbicides, including glyphosate, are synthetic herbicides that interrupt a certain biological process in the weed to kill it. This means the weed has to be actively growing for the herbicide to provide good control. When temperatures get above 85 degrees, most plants' metabolic processes are slowed. Applying herbicides in the morning allow the weeds time to recover from the heat stress overnight and should be actively growing. Another reason is during the heat of the day and dry weather, leaves will droop from wilting, so spray from above won't receive as much herbicide due to the angle of the leaves. Spraying in the morning will help this aspect as well. When it gets hot out, weeds become more resistant to herbicides for other reasons. Their leaves become more waxy, a natural response to the preserved moisture but it makes it more important to use the full rate of surfactant. Of course, since we are talking about soybeans, we need to mention the volatility issues with dicamba and to a lesser degree 2,4-D. Volatility of these herbicides increases when temperatures are above 60 degrees and continue to even increase above 90 degrees. Once volatilized, these herbicides become vapors and can move long distances. Often, the biggest issues is during temperature inversions. Of course, there are a lot of regulations when it comes to spraying soybeans at Canva with temperatures, inversions, wind speeds, sprayer tips, and the time of day, all of which are meant to reduce volatilization and overdrift. Now, there are some herbicides that are actually become more effective in hot and humid conditions, such as contact herbicides of Cobra, Liberty, Reflex, and a few others. The problem is, is that they become too effective, and they will end up causing a good deal of harm to the soybean crop as well. A little stress of soybeans has been shown to increase yields, but there is a proper balance of enough herbicide to affect to kill the weeds and to stress the soybeans, but not so much to set the soybeans back. Most of the time, these herbicides should not be used when it gets above 90 degrees outside. Reducing herbicide rates and applying later in the day towards evening can help protect the soybean leaves. In the end, if it's too hot to be outside, then it's probably too hot to spray herbicides. If there's any questions, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. What's the price of hay right now? With high input prices this season, it's a real rodeo. Between high fuel, fertilizer, and herbicide prices, it seems that harvesters are going to have to really know the value of driving equipment. To help producers figure the cost of making hay, Kansas State University and Oklahoma State University's Ag Economics Department have a number of tools available. The OSU Annual Hay Forage Budget can tally the expenses and returns per ton and per bale, giving you a break-even estimate. The K-State Machinery Costs Calculator can break down the pricing for any enterprise, including hay harvest. These tools are free to use and available online. 
These calculators use operating costs, seed, fertilizer, crop insurance, labor, fuel, maintenance costs to calculate expense totals. The tools don't leave out the fixed costs either, land rental, property taxes, depreciation, or interest rates. Another tool is the Kansas Hay Report. This is a collection of data showing how much has been paid for various types of hay. The reports are made available weekly by the USDA Ag Marketing Service. And there are categories for forage types, alfalfa, blue stem haze, Bermuda, fescue, brome. These categories are further broken into sections of bale type and size and further noted in quality. The quality of the bales is based on crude protein. A premium grass hay will have a crude protein percent above 13. Good quality grass hay indicates a crude protein of 9 to 13 percent. Of course, we know the energy value of hay is also important, and that's one of the hay market's shortcomings. Another factor that gets overlooked is bale weight. The weekly hay reports are given in price per ton, but many folks don't have baler scales to know the exact weight of their bales. A bale that measures 5 by 4 might weigh anywhere from 900 pounds to 1,500. Density matters when figuring the waste at storage and feeding, and of course the amount of hay that's actually available to the feed an animal. When a bale is tightly wrapped, rain and snow are shed more easily, unless storage waste occurs. In a perfect world, hay harvesters would be able to know the exact cost of an operation, the weight of each bale made, and the exact quality of that bale. But equipment is used for numerous enterprises with no solid line to draw between hay harvesting and other activities. Not every hay baler has scales to weigh the amount of forage in the net wrap. Quality testing is a cumbersome pursuit and must be done precisely. Also in the perfect world, purchasers of hay are willing to pay harvesters the price that covers expenses including the labor of gathering off the field and transporting the preserved forage to a convenient location. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Almost all ponds will leak to some degree, especially newly built ponds. But how do you determine whether water loss from your pond is normal or a sign of something more severe? The following information is from the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. We'll start off by discussing water evaporation in farm ponds. In Kansas, expect normal water evaporation from your farm pond. It can range from about 4 feet per year in the eastern part of the state to about 6 feet per year in the west. Most evaporation will occur during the summer, especially in hot, dry, windy periods. During this time, about half an inch of water can be lost to evaporation each day. Water loss greater than this usually indicates a leak in the pond. How to measure water leakage in a farm pond? Pond owners can determine leakage rates by measuring the drop in water level 
with a marked stick. It's recommended this be done during cold or very humid, calm weather. What causes water leaks in a farm pond? Leaks in farm ponds may be the result of permeable sand, gravel, or fractured rock layers that either exist throughout the basin naturally or were exposed by construction. Improper bonding of the embankment to an impermeable foundation soil can also lead to leakage. Some ponds are constructed in areas where all the soil in the basin is permeable, so the leak cannot be pinpointed. Deep ponds tend to leak more because of the increased water pressure on the porous areas. Repairing leaks in a farm pond. Techniques are available to seal leaky and potentially leaky areas in farm ponds. However, most sealing techniques are expensive and require considerable work. If a small gravel or rock area is causing leaks, a bulldozer can be used to remove some of the problem material. The area can then be covered with a layer of soil that has a high clay content of at least 10% clay from some part of the basin. The added soil should be at least one foot thick, but preferably two feet thick. This soil should be compacted as it is being deposited. A sheep foot roller is recommended for serious leak areas. Other products that can be used to repair leaks in a pond include betonite, polymers, and pond liners. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Many homeowners have started noticing strange paper bags hanging from evergreens in their landscapes. These bags are the nests of bagworms. Bagworms are the larval stage of moths that emerge from their bags in late May and early June to feed on the foliage of both deciduous and evergreen trees. Timing of their emergence depends on the weather of the spring. Cooler and wetter weather, as seen this year, will delay the emergence of bagworms. Damage ends up being much more severe on evergreen trees and shrubs due to the lack of foliage regrowth during the year. Bagworms are most common on cedars, junipers, and arborvitae, but can also be found on shade trees like sycamores, elms, and hackberries. Occasionally, they can also nest on buildings. Bagworms form their bags using a combination of plant debris and silk that the worms spin. During the six weeks or so that they feed, they will begin to grow their bags when the worms are an eighth of an inch to a quarter inch long. Bags have slightly different structures depending on whether a male larva or female larva is nesting inside. Bags that have male larva are typically near the bottom of the tree and will be abandoned in the fall after the males become moths. Bags with females, where the eggs overwinter, are usually found towards the tops of trees. One female bag can produce 500 to 1,000 eggs that will all hatch the following spring. If trying to control bagworms, prioritize the bags near the top of the plant to better keep populations in check. Once the worms begin to grow their bags, insecticides are largely ineffective, which means that trees must be sprayed before visual evidence of bagworms' presence appears. In Kansas, these sprays would need to be applied in early June, and then again in mid to late June. 
Presence of bagworms from previous years is the best indicator for determining if your trees need spraying. There are 522 different insecticides labeled for bagworm control in Kansas, so choosing an insecticide to apply will mostly depend on local availability. Hand removal of bagworm bags, though tedious, is the most consistent way to prevent future damage to smaller trees and shrubs. Throw any removed bags into soapy water. Leaving bags on the ground still allows for eggs to grow and hatch. If you have a severe bagworm problem and they are already in their bags and feeding, spinosad sprays will prove the most effective control option. Unlike most insecticides, spinosad does not need to touch the insect it's trying to kill. Instead, spinosad leaves a residue in the canopy that the bagworms will ingest when they go to feed and kill them once ingested. The best part of using spinosad products is that the chemical has very low toxicity for humans compared to most other insecticides. However, it is still important to read the label in its entirety before using any insecticide to know the safest manner to apply it. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Horde Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.